My last few years of seminary, all of us around uh, New Year's would go somewhere to go skiing for a few days. We enjoyed it. It was a nice way to get out of our parents' houses during Christmas break. We had a little cabin fever. It was a good time to spend time with our brothers. And last year, my friend Sam, uh, who was the age equivalent of a college sophomore, a wise fool, as you'll soon find out, um, when he went skiing, he only brought one pair of khaki pants to go skiing. You could see where this is going. He brought one pair of khaki pants, and we said, Sam, you're dumb. Don't do that. You need some other pants, at least some jeans. I mean, they'll get wet, but they're a little more durable than, than, than khaki pants. Well, he didn't really listen. So on one of the first runs down the slope, he, a rather inexperienced skier, fell down. And of course, it's, you know, pants, on the snow, his pants got really, really wet because he wasn't wearing like proper snow pants. But he also realized he had essentially ripped his pants down the entire inseam all the way down. And so he had to embarrassingly ski down that run, essentially wearing his underwear, and go back up on the lift to the lodge, essentially wearing his underwear, and sit around in the lodge because he didn't want to go skiing in his underwear. He preferred to just sit in the lodge wearing essentially his underwear. Now, thankfully, one of the other guys lent him a pair of jeans for the rest of the trip, but Sam had to learn his lesson the hard way, that without the right clothing, you can't do a lot of things, right? You can't play baseball wearing shorts. I know the Chicago White Sox tried to do that a little while in the 70s, and they very quickly learned that didn't work out very well, so they switched back. Or, like, you can't go to the March for Life like I do often in D.C. without a really, really warm coat or some warm pants or else you're gonna freeze. And I think we might see this idea in our gospel today, where we might ask ourselves, what is the deal with this guy not having the wedding garment, and why on earth does the master kick him out of the feast. So let's unpack this a little bit. Why, why, why was he kicked out? Couldn't someone else have just given him theirs? Couldn't someone else have just helped him like we did with my seminarian friend Sam? And this king who went out of his way to go bring everybody in, why does he all of a sudden kick this one guy out? Let's delve deeper. This king invited everyone to this feast, this royal feast, this amazing feast, the table of plenty. We get a bit of an image of it in this Old Testament reading where our Lord promises us rich food and choice wines, juicy rich food and pure choice wines. This is an obvious symbol of the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven that all of us are invited to, every single one of us. This invitation is universal, just like that universal call to holiness that each one of us has by virtue of our baptism. Everyone is invited. And so this gospel, we see this invitation extended to every single person on the face of the earth. And we see how much God wants everyone to be there. When people might say, no, he goes out and gets more people. He desires everyone to come to this feast. So again, why would he kick this guy out over something that seems rather innocent, not having a wedding garment? Well, that wedding garment, brothers and sisters, symbolizes sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace. It's the life of God within our souls. And the very first time that we receive sanctifying grace is at our baptism. It's the very first tangible experience of God in our lives. So sanctifying grace is what's being symbolized by this wedding garment. And how do we maybe symbolize sanctifying grace at baptism? Well... 
a white garment that all of us were clothed in, whether as infants or as adults, that symbolizes sanctifying grace. And so it's, again, uh, talked about here, this wedding garment, if you will, symbolized by our baptismal gown. That means we have sanctifying grace in our souls. And sanctifying grace makes us fit and prepared for heaven. It makes us fit to go there. It makes us worthy to enter that feast. And we know that this worthiness does not come from ourselves or our own efforts. As we heard in the second reading, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not through my own efforts, but through Christ. Christ makes us worthy to get there by giving us his sanctifying grace. So sanctifying grace is our ticket, if you will, to that dinner. Now, we can very easily lose sanctifying grace, either through a lack of faith or it can become dirtied and sullied through mortal sin. And so, but we also have to remember that it can be restored through confession. It can be cleaned or we can be given a new one. So maybe on a micro level, a, you know, a smaller level, it's a reminder to us that if we have mortal sin on our souls, we should go to confession first before receiving the Eucharist, before we come to that table, to that banquet, to make sure that the wedding garment of our souls, if you will, is purified and clean and that we are fully prepared for the feast. Again, just this rich feast, we wouldn't want to go underdressed, right? It's like showing up to a state dinner at the White House wearing a t-shirt and shorts when it's black tie minimum, right? Or any of us, maybe when we were kids, you know, if we came down for dinner, we were not very well dressed, mom would say, go back up and change. It's the same for us. We would want to come to this feast fully prepared and fully fit for what we are about to receive. And it's also a demonstration of our reverence for the Eucharist itself and for the esteem with which we hold it. But again, on a big picture level, sanctifying grace is what is required for us, or really it's the primary way that we are brought into heaven. Because without that garment of baptism, that wedding garment, we are going to be left out of that royal feast, just like this man. He was invited, he listened to the call, but he didn't have sanctifying grace. He was a sinner. He had lost it through mortal sin. So we need sanctifying grace in order to get into heaven. And this gospel talks about how important sanctifying grace is to our souls and how when we leave this world, we want to make sure that we have it. So it's another reminder, especially from this reading, to get last rites and final sacraments for anyone who might be in danger of death or close to death. To ensure that we leave this world with our wedding garment with us, ready to go for that feast and to approach the feast worthily. I think maybe another way that we recall this is in our Catholic liturgy. Because the only other time outside of our baptism that every single one of us is clothed, if you will, with a white garment, is at a funeral. That funeral pall is placed on the casket to symbolize baptism, that wedding garment so that we can be brought to the feast worthily. And when that garment is placed on the casket, the priest says, in the waters of baptism, this person died with Christ. May they now share with him eternal glory. That funeral, Paul, recalls the white garment of our baptism and how our souls, if they have sanctifying grace, are clothed with it. And we are therefore ready to enter the feast. So from the beginning to the end, the whole arc of the Christian life, if you will, we're called to not lose that wedding garment or to not let it become sullied or dirtied with sin. And if it has been, we can renew it through the sacrament of confession. 
So brothers and sisters, let's be prepared not just for the Eucharist today, but for heaven later on. That we can maintain that sanctifying grace that we receive in our baptism, that life of God in our souls. Because it's the key to us not just being invited, but being welcomed with open arms. So may we have the right attire, and maybe the right attitude and the right state of soul to enter into heaven and feast on the royal banquet prepared for us for all eternity.